interesting to be studying the Pali language, language that the scriptures are written in. Because as a language, it reflects many really quite amazing subtleties about different states of mind, different experiences, different ways of expression. We actually find quite difficult to use English in just the same way, with as much skill and subtlety. In Pali, there's a distinction made between different kinds of teaching, the verb to teach. And said that in that sense, the Buddha did not teach, meaning did not inform about or instruct others about the Dhamma, the truth, but rather he proclaimed it. More exactly, he revealed it. It's not the transition, the transmission of information, of a thing, of a commodity, of an entity, but it's the revelation of the truth, of how things actually are. What this means for us is that we can recognize that even without the teaching, there is the truth, that we can't give the truth to someone. We can only point to it. It's in that spirit, in precisely that spirit, that we can hear a teaching and then look at our own lives, at our own experience, and see what might have been revealed about it through that hearing. In the text, they have phrases that say things like, as people hear a teaching, they respond to it by saying, that which was overturned has been righted, the hidden revealed, the way has been shown to one who was lost. A lamp has been held up in the darkness. In the end, in the final analysis, we can't hold on to the teachings. We cannot become attached to them because in some strange sense, there is nothing there. There's nothing to claim. There's no thing. There's no commodity we can take with us. There's only our lives, whether we live them wisely, truly, We live them in ignorance, not understanding. And this is everything. Because of this perception, this understanding, we don't cling to the teachings as a kind of sectarian view. The Buddha said once, I do not argue with the world. It is the world which argues with me. that if people criticize the teaching, try to compare it to others, he did not argue back. It's not something that needs to be defended or fought over. The truth can speak for itself. Many times the Buddha was asked about what he thought about a certain teacher, a certain presentation, or a certain doctrine. Most commonly, he refused to answer. He did not argue with the world. Mostly, he would hold up a certain set of criteria and allow people to assess for themselves, to judge for themselves. We've talked about some of this before. He'd say things like, look to see if the path, if the practice, leads to the complete ending of greed and hatred and delusion in your lives. And if it does, you can trust it. Look to see whether it leads to the end of suffering. Look for yourselves. While we do not get attached and we do not cling to the Dhamma, to the teachings, as a view, as a thing, as something we can possess or own, we must understand that we can and must and should respect it we can uphold it, we can treasure it, cherish it, and we can protect it. It's just saying that one who protects the Dhamma, the truth, will be protected by it. Sometimes this concept of protection is a little difficult for us to understand. We might think that we have to take a stance in life in which we are completely fearless, 
able to undertake anything whatsoever, do not need any kind of protection. Or we might feel that protection is attachment, is some kind of holding on or grasping, and that it will limit us, it will hold us back or confine us. Or we might confuse protection as a kind of denial that is so rampant in our lives that we can protect ourselves by not facing something, by not seeing the truth or seeing clearly. But protection, as we, as we use the word, is actually wisdom. It's insight. It's seeing and knowing deeply that all things in our experience arise due to causes, due to conditions coming together in a certain way. That we need not try to destroy suffering, even our own suffering. We don't need to destroy or obliterate conflict or problems. What we do need to do is to have the compassion and the courage to change the conditions that support the suffering and support the unhappiness. Those conditions are the ignorance, not understanding, clinging and holding on. That is why the path is so gentle and so wise, because it recognizes that there is no thingness, there is no ultimate reality to the pain, that even the pain we experience is a combination of conditions coming together, and that if we change the conditions, we will change the effect. If we understand this, this one concept or this one idea, then we will understand what is meant by the word protection, how we can move our lives and train our hearts in a certain direction and not just float along, taking things as they come. If we change the balance that is brought to any situation in any moment of our lives, we change our entire lives. This is the opposite of being motivated by fear, feeling that we have to shrink away from certain experiences. It's the opposite of fear, which defines certain aspects of our lives as unbearable. It says, I cannot bear to feel that. I'd better protect myself. There's great strength in the understanding that we're talking about, and a lot of self-confidence, because we realize that, in fact, we can bear it very well. But out of compassion and love for ourselves and for others, we learn, we learn to change the balance, to alter the inner environment so that our world can change. You know, the teachings of the Buddha are talked about most commonly as the middle way or the middle path because they avoid two extremes in many different senses. It avoids the extreme of overindulgence or reliance upon sense pleasure for perfect happiness. We live in this world of great promise, where everything seems to offer somehow an unchanging final happiness, if we can only get enough of it. So it's a very glittering, shimmering world. It's very intoxicating. We avoid that extreme in pursuing the middle path. Although as one friend once said about we Americans, that really what we like or seem to like is the upper middle path. (laughs) So that is something to look at as well. If we get lost in the delusion that somehow some sensual pleasure, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, thinking, whatever it is, is going to provide a lasting happiness, then we're lost because as things continually change, we continually suffer. The other extreme of this reliance, this overindulgence of the senses, is the extreme of self-mortification or self-torment or over-asceticism. In the philosophical systems of India, in the time of the Buddha, It was often believed that if the body could be tortured enough or tormented enough and somehow be almost like the spirit would soar free and the person would be liberated. And so people practiced very extreme things. 
Nowadays, we don't go in for that very much. It's not very common, certainly not for us. But what seems to have replaced it is a kind of mental or emotional self-mortification or self-torment, where often people seem to believe that if somehow they, if they can condemn themselves enough or torture themselves enough with self-hatred, that somehow the spirit will soar free and there will be liberation. There will be final and perfect happiness. It is imperative for us that we can see beyond this tendency in order to both understand and achieve true spiritual transformation. And the Buddha said, hatred will never cease by hatred. It will only cease by love. This is an eternal law that included the quality of self-hatred. It will never cease by hatred. That pervasive pain that we face so much can only continue if it is fed in that way, if it is supported in that way. Bringing hatred to a hate-filled situation will add hatred. Love will bring love. The Buddha also said, and this is quite an incredible statement, he said, you can search the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than yourself. This person is not to be found anywhere. What an incredible statement that is, that we can search the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of our loving care and our affection than we are ourselves, and that that person is not to be found anywhere. Is that It is out of that degree, that sense of love and compassion for ourselves, that we begin to learn about what is meant by protection. One who protects the Dhamma, the truth, will be protected by it. When we see the relatedness of ourselves to the universe, that we do not live as isolated entities, untouched by what is going on around us, not affecting what is going on around us, when we see through that, that we are interrelated, then we can see that to protect others is to protect ourselves, and to protect ourselves is to protect others. And vice versa, over and over again, to support others is to support ourselves. To cherish others is to cherish ourselves. To cherish ourselves is to cherish others. And in that same way, we relate to the truth. If we support it, if we embrace it, if we uphold it, we will be embraced by it. We will be supported and upheld by it. At the heart of this idea is the knowing that what we are looking for is a place to rest. We're looking for a safe haven, a sense of being, ceasing to become constantly, to be still instead of toppling forward, to be careening through the world of constant change. We're looking for a refuge. To find the refuge, we learn to protect ourselves. In protecting ourselves, we learn to protect all beings. The two other phrases in Pali that I want to talk about, one is called Kalesa Bhumi and the other is called Panya Bhumi. Bhumi means place of occurrence, place of arising. Kalesa means defilement or more literally, torment of the mind, those qualities that arise that torment us, that bring that degree of unhappiness. And panya means wisdom. What these two phrases taken together mean is that the body and the mind are the place of occurrence for both defilement and wisdom, for both bondage and freedom. That when the body and the mind are unobserved, we remain unawakened. And then it is the ground for defilement to arise. When we do observe, when we are aware, then we see the nature of the body and the mind, and that very same body and mind 
is the ground for liberation, for freedom to arise. It's not as though we have to take our experience, this body, this mind, and somehow trade it in for a better one, a different one, in order to be able to experience liberation. It's the very same body and mind, unobserved or observed. It's a little bit like owning a plot of land and using it well or not. To use it well is to protect it, to treasure it. In the Buddhist cosmology, where a lot of different realms of existence are talked about, a lot of different possibilities of rebirth, it's said to be extremely rare and therefore very precious to have a human birth. Because, as I've talked about before, of that unique mixture of pleasure and pain that we have. Enough pleasure so that we're not completely overcome, staggering under the weight of the pain, and enough pain, so we're not satisfied to stay on the surface of things. We have the courage and the insistence to look deeper for hidden realities. It's a very rare event to have this mixture, to have a human birth, and it's very precious. We need to use it very well to treasure it, to protect it. The Buddha talked about five ways that we need to protect ourselves and our practice to cherish it, bring it to fruition. And he used the example of a plot of land. He said that the first thing we need to do when we have this land is to fence it in, to protect it from wild animals. Then we need to water it regularly. We need to loosen the earth around the roots so that the roots can grip strongly. Then we need to weed the plants, weed the, the garden, so as to remove the inessential factors. And the last thing we need to do is to keep away the insects, which may be very small, almost invisible to the naked eye, but these very tiny creatures may do very great harm to the plants in the, in the plot of land. If these five efforts, these five things are carried out, then we can enjoy the fruit of our labors of having this plot of land. If we've planted a seed of meditation, in just that same way we fulfill these five in order to enjoy the fruit of it, in order to live with our bodies and minds as an expression of love and awakening and compassion, rather than as an expression of grasping and aversion and ignorance. The first of these protections is comparable to fencing in the plot of land to keep the wild animals away. And that is considered to be having a very strong commitment in our lives to morality, to protect ourselves with morality. It's like building a fence around the plot of land. It's keeping away what was once translated as the outrageous defilements. The defilements that get so strong that they overcome us and we hurt others, we hurt ourselves. And as we look around, it's very clear that in this world, people do outrageous things to one another all of the time. We need to be protected from that because we need to be protected from the suffering of that. It's not that these qualities or our actions make us bad people, but they bring tremendous suffering in our lives if we don't know how to work with them. If we have this very strong commitment so that we can feel the joy and the safety within the boundaries, we can trust ourselves and be beacons of trust for others, no matter what the circumstance, then we're protected from suffering the karmic consequences of many actions, just as we send a certain kind of energy into the universe, the universe will return just that same kind of energy. We can be protected from that, from that pain. We can be protected from guilt, 
which is one of the worst kinds of self-hatred and self-torment. To go over and over and over again, acts we have done, with aversion and dislike and despair about ourselves. That's guilt. We can be free of that and protected from it if we can respect our own boundaries and our willingness to undertake this commitment. We can be protected from alienation from others and the kind of inner confusion and turmoil and fear that comes when we're living in some way that isn't straight, that isn't clear. And we all know that. We all live lives and we all have minds and all have sensitivity. We can see clearly the consequences of our actions and our motivations and know that the things we care about, the things we we do, they really matter. They matter quite a lot to ourselves and to others. There are these two qualities that are talked about in the Buddha's teaching. In Pali, they're called Hiri and Otsapa, which are usually translated as moral shame and moral dread, which are very difficult terms to come to grasp and appreciate in any way. I don't know if inanimate objects like words can have karma, but I sometimes think that the karma of these two words is pretty bad in terms of their translation. What they mean is a very beautiful and delicate sense of conscience. It's like an extreme sensitivity. So that something inside us just pulls back from harming or from hurting. And it's a beautiful movement out of that much caring for ourselves and others. This gets developed through the process of having that commitment to protecting ourselves taking care with our actions. The path of the Buddha is also called the middle path because it avoids two extreme views. One extreme view holds that somewhere in this world of appearance and presentation, this glittering world of sense pleasure phenomena, there is something somewhere that we can find that will not change. Somewhere there is something that is substantial, that is solid, that can be relied upon. When we hold to that view, we look for that one thing constantly. We think we have it, we hold on, we experience loss, and we suffer. The other extreme view holds that our lives are kind of chaos, where things just happen. And everything is empty, and so it doesn't matter what we do, what we care about, what we think about. It's all kind of blank or void. It's from that point of view that people would say, well, if effort is an empty phenomenon, what difference does it make if I put forth effort or not? Why bother? It's from that point of view that a Zen master would usually take a stick and hit somebody over the head to say that if everything is empty, why did that hurt? We say that everything is empty, this is true, that there is no solid, unchanging core to our experience, but that does not mean that nothing matters. Things don't just happen. We don't live in some kind of crazy, accidental universe. Things happen according to certain laws. Laws of nature, a very natural unfolding. Laws such as the law of karma, which teaches us that as a certain seed gets planted, so will that fruit be. That if we plant an apple seed, we can beg and plead and implore to have a mango, but we ain't going to get it. There is a way to get a mango because we live in a lawful universe and that is to plant a mango seed. And this is very important, that we be able to hold both these truths at the same time. The ultimate emptiness of our experience, its constant changing nature, and at the same time to understand that it is lawful. It's not crazy, and it's not haphazard. 
and that we can and must direct our lives according to these laws. When the Dalai Lama was here some years ago, he was asked by somebody in giving a talk about these two aspects of the teachings, understanding emptiness and the ultimate nature of all experience, and then understanding the law of karma and the relative world, the world of relationship. He was asked if he had to make a choice between these two approaches and could only teach one, which one would he teach? He said he would teach the law of karma. Because in each and every moment, if we understand that law, we have the possibility of really transforming our lives. And beginning from there, making it real, not just something to think about or to appreciate, but from understanding the power of each of our intentions in each and every moment, it is right there that we can transform our lives. This is why we undertake that kind of commitment to morality, because of its very great power. And that is the first protection. The second protection has to do with listening to the Dhamma or studying the Dhamma, reading books or trying to understand the theory of the teachings. It's compared to watering the garden, watering the plot of land regularly. It clarifies the path for us, and so it's a protection. It means knowing practical methods of practice, of meditation, putting them into action, and understanding in a very broad way what their implications are. Understanding beyond the efficacy of a certain technique, Understanding the truth that is manifest through the different techniques, through each moment of experience. The Buddha said that when there is understanding along with practice, then one's path becomes very broad. He likened it to the kind of path that an elephant makes going through the jungle. It's very broad, it's not narrow. It's not limited to a certain technique. You understand that what is important is not at essence, at the heart of the matter. It's not mental noting. It's not moving slowly. But rather understand what these things do, what they bring, why we do them, what they imply. So it makes our path very broad. It's very important to understand the protection of this. The kind of inspiration and joy and faith and power that comes out of understanding what we're doing. So that in a single moment we understand that we're not just facing a knee pain and our discouragement and our wishing that the sitting would end, but that right in that moment of seeing the knee pain, we are able to explore the entire teachings of the Buddha. What does it mean to have a painful experience? What does it mean to hate it and to fear it? What does it mean to allow it to be able to experience it fully? Right there, we have a core teaching. So each of our experiences can be treasured, can be used very fully and very wisely. We can be grateful for what we are experiencing if we understand the implications of the teachings and how in each moment they are coming alive for us. It's actually very powerful when we're feeling discouraged, when we're feeling tired and impatient. We want to trade it all in and give up to understand that we are living these teachings And that if we understand what is actually going on, it's not so boring anymore. There's something very extraordinary going on. As we look at a moment of seeing or hearing or tasting or touching or smelling or thinking, we see that that is our entire universe. That those are all the ways we can know in this life until the day we die. 
This is how we know the world. And that each of those moments has that feeling quality, that feeling tone to it, of being pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. To know that subsequent to that feeling, there is a response or a reaction of grasping or aversion or delusion or equanimity and balance and wisdom and compassion. And that it is right in that moment that we find bondage or freedom. Not this afternoon after lunch when we're feeling better or tomorrow or the next retreat. It's right in that moment. And we must understand that. If we can understand it, then we're very powerfully protected because we have the energy to keep going no matter what is happening. The third protection has to do with having spiritual friends, having good friends, and being able to explore and discuss the teachings with these good friends. It's likened to loosening the earth around the roots of a plant or tree. It's said that this is good in moderation, just enough and not too much. We can do this, when we can do this, then we're able to explore our sense of limits. Sometimes we have a very narrow sense of our own limitation that's quite self-imposed. In contact with a spiritual community or spiritual friends or teacher with a spiritual friend, we can often dissolve the sense of our own limits, explore our boundaries, see what our parameters actually are in a given moment. We can see beyond the immediate, be able to connect our immediate experience to a larger picture. This gives us a more enduring and a more transcendent sense of balance. When we are not left alone with our own sense of what we are capable of, or our own interpretation, which can seem so weighty or meaningful of what is happening through a certain experience. In some of the descriptions of the teachings, when they talk about the various qualities of liberation, various factors of freedom, of mind, Talk about right view or right understanding as being foremost amongst these. Understanding the true nature of our lives. Understanding karma and the relatedness of our actions to the universe. Understanding emptiness. Understanding unsatisfactoriness and impermanence. For all these qualities that are talked about, there are also different conditions that are talked about, that are very close to these qualities, that help produce these qualities, help support them and create them. These are called the proximate causes. The most immediate proximate cause for right understanding or right view is said to be wise attention, paying clear attention to what is happening. The secondary proximate cause for right view or right understanding about the nature of our lives to arise is having good friends, having spiritual friends. Because it is that supportive of our values and our clear seeing to be able to communicate with people who are dedicated to mindfulness and to awareness, to awakening. These are friends and these are teachers Even if it's very painful at times, this communication, it doesn't matter. Because in fact, it is a kind of protection that goes beyond pleasure and pain. It's more important than that because of the honesty that's involved in that. It's because of this honesty that it's a protection. There's a story about a conversation once held between the Buddha and the horse trainer. 
in which the horse trainer asked the Buddha, how do you train people? How do you train yogis? And the Buddha said, well, let me ask you first how you train horses. The horse trainer said, well, I have four ways in which I train horses. There's the soft way, and there's the hard way, and then there's the combination of the soft way and the hard way. And if none of that works, if neither of those three approaches work, then given the fact that I'm a very renowned horse trainer and I have to take care of my reputation, well, then I just kill the horse. (laughs) And the Buddha said, in just that way, I have four ways that I train yogis, that I train people. He said, there's the soft way in which I teach about the joy and the happiness, the extraordinary happiness that comes out of skillful intentions, living life skillfully, out of wisdom, out of mindfulness. And then there's the hard way in which I talk about the pain and the grief and the sorrow that comes out of living, out of grasping and aversion and delusion. And then there's the combination way, which I talk about both these things, the soft and the hard. And then in the end, if none of these three things work, then I also kill the yogi. And said that the horse trainer was quite astonished, not to say appalled. And he said, well, being the Buddha, don't you think that's kind of inappropriate? And the Buddha said, I kill them by ceasing to admonish them. I kill them by letting go of them. That is why the communication with a spiritual friend goes beyond pleasure and pain, between, it goes beyond being comfortable and being uncomfortable. And that is why it is such a great protection, because it is all about honesty and seeing clearly. The fourth of these protections is that of concentration. And it's likened to weeding the plot of land. Protecting it from things that will not be helpful. In the mind that is protecting ourselves from hindrances. It means putting in mental effort to get concentrated. Right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration to weed the garden, to weed the plot of land, means to develop the power not to be tossed around by our mind states, but to take hold, to take active hold of one's mind and one's life and to direct it. It's very powerful. We don't need to be afraid of it. And yet people often are. They're afraid of empowering themselves in this way, really taking hold of their lives. Mostly people seem to fear some kind of wrong effort, doing violence to themselves or doing damage to themselves. And so they don't want to make any kind of effort at all. This is a very big mistake because it is laying waste a power that we actually have. It's not utilizing our minds in the way we actually can to our full potential. These three qualities taken together of a balanced effort, right effort, and concentration and mindfulness When they work together, then the hindrances do not have an easy time of it. Even though they may arise, they cannot find a home, they cannot find a foothold in the mind. It brings mental strength, it brings stability, calmness, and power. It's very important that we understand this. We look constantly for the right balance. It's almost as though Thinking about the garden, we shape and we form and we affect the garden. And still, within that form, it reflects the beauty and the wildness of nature. It's the naturalness of this earth that gets reflected through the form of the garden as we shape it. In just that same way, we create a form in the body and the mind, in its expression, that reflects the purity of the formless. We take it in hand, we shape it, we create it, and we recreate it. We learn to manifest it. 
We apply our effort to be mindful, to be aware in this very moment, right here and now. And we bring a very wholehearted effort to it. This brings concentration. This concentration will bring everything else. It will bring all the other results of practice. To know how not to be overpowered by the hindrances brings very great strength. Our hearts, our minds are very sensitive. If we don't protect this heart through mindfulness and through effort and through concentration, it can easily be overcome and hurt and damaged. Hearts actually break. We need to protect ourselves through these forces, through these powers that we actually have at hand. What we need in our lives, rather than to not make effort, what we need is to heal by becoming united or becoming whole. We become powerful in this way, and this is the effect of concentration. Instead of being scattered all over the place, in so many different ways, all at the same time. We gather all of our energy in, we bring it together, and so we feel united. Instead of only a few elements of our experience now and then being known to us through awareness, we get in touch with all of it, so that we can touch it and be touched by it. This brings a sense of wholeness. Instead of frittering away and wasting our energy and losing balance all of the time, we coalesce. And this brings power. It brings inconceivable power to be able to concentrate strongly. We talk about, in our day and age, we talk about personal power. Well, this is it. To bring all of our energy together in any single moment. This is concentration. It is this power that we use to cut through, to cut through the world of surface appearances, to get to a much deeper reality, a more hidden reality. It's just like when we look at the light in a room. It's got a certain strength, certain power. If we take that light and we concentrate it enough, it becomes a laser. And at that point, it can cut through steel. It's the same light but it's coalesced, it's brought together. We can do just that same thing with the mind. We can cut through and transcend apparent limitations and boundaries of conventional reality, of time and space, of the familiar world or the conventional world. We can go beyond it. Concentration works by putting aside all that which is inessential. It's like weeding the garden, allowing the plant to breathe, giving it some space, making sure it will get enough water and enough oxygen. That is just what we do in concentration. We keep putting aside everything that is inessential. This is very different from a state of repression, where something comes up and we define it as unbearable. We say, I cannot feel this. I cannot let myself feel it. I cannot let myself be the kind of person who has that sort of thought or feeling. Repression is done out of hatred and fear. What we're talking about is much more a sense of selective attention. Where we know what is essential, we have a commitment to it, and we keep putting aside that which will choke it, that which will obstruct it. We put it aside gently, but clearly. That is the power of concentration. We don't have to be afraid of using it to be able to say not now or no thank you to the various things that come up and confuse us. Then the last of the protections is a very interesting and subtle one. It actually comes from a riddle that the Buddha gave once. He said... One should not allow the mind to wander without. Neither should one allow the mind to stop within. Bhikkhus or yogis who are able to be mindful in that way will eventually be able to extinguish all suffering. So this is a pretty great promise 
to be able to extinguish all suffering. It's worth paying attention to what this riddle might mean. It's a little bit tricky, because if we don't want the mind to wander without, just to go all over the place, then it's easy to imagine bringing it within through the power of concentration. But if we don't want it to stop within either, where does that leave us, and what does it mean? So that the Buddha gave this riddle to the assembled body of people, and then he went off to his room. And everyone was left quite confused. Couldn't figure out what he was talking about. So they asked a particular monk who was very famous for being able to explain the very short discourses of the Buddha. And they said, what does this mean? Do not wander without we understand. That means don't give in to the hindrances and just let the mind go every which way. But what does it mean, do not stop within? It refers to a lot of the really pleasant and good things that can happen in the practice. States of comfort and bliss and accuracy, states of calm and equanimity and insight. It refers not to getting attached to any of this, not allowing ourselves to fall into that trap of getting attached to any state at all to realize that that is not what freedom is about. That if we get attached even to a beautiful state of being, we are caught and ultimately we will suffer. We must see everything that comes our way as changing, as empty of self, as not ours, to be observed, experienced while it is there, to be able to let go of it. There's a time when I was sitting in 1984, the famous 1984 course with Sayadaw Upandita, when for the first, it was about six or six and a half weeks, I didn't feel very good. I was working very hard, and I think my experience, my practice was actually quite deep. I was feeling dizzy, really a lot, very dizzy and very nauseous. I used to walk a lot, kind of holding onto walls or holding onto chairs. And I was moving extremely slowly. As I've mentioned before, practicing the torment of continuity. So that often, not uncommonly, it would take me about an hour to get from my room in the annex to here in the meditation hall. And there I was, kind of crawling along the walls, feeling very dizzy. But I kept working. I didn't like it much, but I kept working. Then, after that period, close to seven weeks into the course, it all went away. And I felt absolutely wonderful. It was like I was floating through the air. It was so beautiful. This lasted for two days. (laughs) And I went in for an interview with the Sayadaw. And I described this for the second day in a row. And he listened to the tone of voice in which I was describing this. And he said, are you sure you're not getting attached to this? And I looked at him and I thought, you've got to be kidding. (laughs) I thought, six and a half weeks of dizziness and nausea, two measly days of feeling good, and you want me to be concerned about whether I'm getting attached to it? (laughs) I thought, that is absolutely ridiculous. But, of course, he was completely correct. Because the attachment to the state was limiting my freedom. And in the end... It is absolutely not worth it. To get attached to anything at all is to get stuck. And we have to understand our priority, what is most important. What is most important is not getting intoxicated with a good feeling or getting intoxicated even with an insight. It's a very powerful result in the practice. We don't ever want to be trading that in for the very extraordinary Freedom of not being attached to anything at all. Perfect freedom of mind. Not to cling and not to condemn. Not to identify with what is going on. The hardest part of letting go in this way is simply remembering that that is what is most important. That in some wonderful situation where everything seems to be opening up and fabulous things are happening, 
to remember that the most important part of that experience is not to cling to it. That is the most difficult part of all. If we can remember, then it will work. It is just a question of practice, getting accustomed to that, getting more proficient of that. That part comes easily. The difficult part is remembering that this is our highest value. This is a great protection. It's the greatest protection because it means that we won't settle for less than what we are capable of. We won't compromise. We won't give up freedom for just another experience, even a very special and extraordinary experience. This takes many forms in our practice. We go through times of great release. There's been physical holding, maybe forever. And something opens up and it releases. We go through great times of catharsis, where things that have been bottled up and repressed come to the surface and get freed. We go through times of having very clear memories, things that may have confused us in our lives, suddenly become clear and sharp. And we go through times of a lot of altered states, where concentration does get very strong, and we feel very far out, and it's all very wonderful. We go through times of a lot of insight. We feel like we're seeing clearly. It takes many different forms. What we have to remember is that what we're going through should not be denigrated. It's not like we're trying to put it down or scorn it. But we have to realize that what we're going through might be powerful and important and true, but it is not ultimately what the practice is about. The practice is about freedom in every moment, which means not holding on, not grasping. To be able to be absolutely with whatever is happening. We understand that the movement, the growth of the practice comes from letting go of more and more and more, not from more getting and having and acquiring. The more we can be with peace in this very moment with how things actually are, the greater the protection that we have. These are the five ways that we nurture, we protect the truth, we take care of that seed that we have planted through morality, through understanding, studying the teachings, through discussion, having the support of spiritual friends, through concentration, taking care with our minds. And finally, through being able to let go, through insight or vipassana, to see that whatever experience is arising, to know that it will change, that ultimately it is unsatisfactory, and that it is empty of self, part of this ongoing chain of cause and effect, of dependence arising. We've taken this seed and we've planted it, And now we need to use all of these ways to nourish it and to protect it, to protect the Dhamma, the truth, so that we, in turn, can be protected by it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.